0: Hi, and welcome to the 40 and Infertile podcast. I'm your host, Victoria, at 40 and Infertile on Instagram. I'm a fellow IVF patient, and this is where I share with you my fertility journey in my late 30s and 40s, while also providing you information to minimize your fertility struggles later in life. Hey guys, welcome to episode 36. This one is about recurrent pregnancy loss and implantation failure. Um, This is always a really tough discussion. Um, There are a lot of people who experience this and are struggling and just want some answers and... You know, I wish that this was um, the magic episode that could give you everything you wanted to need and wanted or needed to hear um, to find your solution. Um, But of course, there's always times where we don't have an explanation. Um, But hopefully, this episode does give you some insight. So today, we're discussing recurrent pregnancy loss with Dr. Jessica Reinick and she is a reproductive endocrinologist, and we explore many possible reasons um, that one might experience recurrent loss. Um, Like I said, there's just so much frustration around this topic sometimes, particularly when we have a normal embryo, and we can't seem to understand why we're unable to carry a pregnancy to term. Um, Like I said, you know, this may not give you all the answers you need, but maybe it'll give you some insight. Um, Maybe it'll give you some hope. Maybe it will give you some information to take back to your fertility doctors um, to explore maybe possibilities to help you in the future. Um, as always, please share this with anyone that you think might find this information beneficial. If you found value in this episode, I'd love a five-star review. This will help get the episode and the podcast out to more ears. I'm going to keep this introduction super short because Dr. Rynek has a lot to share with us today and I want her to do all the talking. (laughs) So, uh, um, again, if you have any questions, any suggestions, um, for upcoming episodes, don't hesitate to reach out at 40 and infertile. Otherwise, let's go. Just a quick reminder, I am not a physician and the information provided today is for educational and informational purposes only and is not a substitute for professional medical advice. So, make sure that you consult with your own fertility doctor before choosing any medical therapies that may affect your fertility. Unfortunately, every person's situation is unique and it is vital that you discuss your own personal situation with your fertility doctor to decide what is the best course of action for you. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to another episode. And today we have Dr. Jessica Reinick um, here with us to talk about a really, really difficult topic, recurrent pregnancy loss. And I think this is such an important topic because... Um, I think loss um, and the experience of loss can often be overlooked and can be exceptionally traumatizing. And there are those of us who have experienced loss who will never be the same um, because of it. And um, I think even more frustrating um, sometimes when we have a normal embryo, we can't really explain why it's happening and we kind of want answers. So, you know, I think we're all just trying to reduce the chances of this happening. So thank you, thank you, thank you so much for being here to talk about this really um, tough issue and explore all of these different things with us.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And thank you for having me. This is actually my very first podcast that I'm doing. So very excited. Yay! I'm, I'm glad to be the first one. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, okay, so let's just kind of start with an introduction for people who don't know you. And for people who don't know, like you have to go over to her Instagram because <laughs> one, it's highly entertaining and two, it's highly educational. It's super supportive and a great space to be in. So thanks for putting out that content. But for those who haven't ventured over to your page, can you kind of... Tell us more about how you got uh, into fertility.
1: Yeah. So, um, I mean, I grew up in a big family, so I have two older brothers and two younger sisters and always wanted to be a mom myself. Um, cause family is so important to me. Um, and they've always been such a great, um, place for support and strength and, and everything throughout my whole life. So again, having a family myself was really important and, having um, the ability to help other people make their families um, who may not be able to or may want to make their family look as how they're expecting it um, was just such a wonderful um, opportunity to me when I learned about reproductive medicine and fertility. And the field in general, I think, is just kind of really well suited to me because there are so many different aspects. You know, there's medicine and endocrinology, which is super fascinating to me. Um, You know, the fact that we can look at what's happening in our body in a regular menstrual cycle and kind of manipulate it to um, either improve itself or do things above and beyond. Um, So there's a lot of medicine involved. There's also surgery and procedural um, parts of this field. And I really love using my hands and doing procedures. So I'm glad that I didn't have to, you know, totally give that up to do this kind of medicine. And then there's so much mental health and psychology and everything involved in it as well, which I just think is is really important to taking care of kind of the whole patient. And this field just brought all of that together for me to kind of have the perfect job, in my opinion. Mm hmm. Yeah. And, you know, I think what's hard, too,
0: is. I was actually having this conversation with someone the other day where I don't think enough is talked about the emotional kind of stress that comes with this, because I I think with the lack of knowledge in like the public space in general, we end up thinking like, oh, it's a one and done. Like there's so many people who came on doing their first round of IVF going like, oh, just one, like science is amazing. It mm-hmm. could do amazing things. So we're like one and done. It's like, whoa, like, and then, you know, you yeah. listen to these stories and then we're like five cycles in. And, you know, some Absolutely. of us know we're closer and um, it it is an exceptionally frustrating space to be in. So I, I think it's great that you kind of bring that into it because I, I think- It can be hard sometimes when you're... Because, you know, for people like you, you see it and do it every single day, right? Mm -hmm. But I think it's so important when... Um, you're able to recognize that like, oh, my gosh, you know, this can still be hard, even though for you, it's like a thing you do every day. And you're like, I'm going to do the best I can to to get you the outcome you want. But, you know, for a lot of us, it's our first time or it's our second time or we are, you know, you're our expert and we're not. And we're like, what do we do and what does this all mean? So um, I, I think it's so great that you encompass all of that as part of your practice.
1: Yeah, well, it's such a it's such a cognitive disconnect, I think, because, As we're growing up and it's not the right time for us to be having children, you know, you hear all the time like you could get pregnant just by looking in the, you know, someone in the opposite (laughs) sex in the backseat of a car. Like, be very careful. And, you know, it's all about like what risk that would be to someone younger compared to someone who's ready for that. But you know, I when we find out what the chances actually are of getting pregnant, and then yeah. when we confront things like infertility and ability, inability to get pregnant, it's such a shock because nobody ever thought that that was going to happen to them. And then on top of that, like, I think specifically, like the generation that's trying to conceive right now you know it is still a little bit of like a stigma and taboo to talk about it although i think a lot more open with social media and all of Mm -hmm. that but the generation before us that raised us i feel like never talked about this Mm -mm. stuff and so you like would never talk about your period you would never talk about any of that and so we just were totally unprepared and so it's that shock can really really hurt someone and There's actually been studies that have been done that show that like the the mental health issues that come with infertility are as devastating potentially as those of cancer and Mm -hmm. like other terminal illnesses. So Mm -hmm. it's it's very prominent. Mm
0: -hmm. um, Yeah, I I think it's so true um, what you say, too, about um kind of our exposure, because I think when we had our first conversation before this, we talked about how we didn't talk about our menstrual period. So nobody knew about your mm-hmm. menstrual period. And you didn't know you had five days, You have five days mm-hmm. where you could potentially like create life, right? Like there's nobody yeah. tells you you have five days, right? Plus or minus, nope. right? Depending on the person, mm-hmm. but plus or minus it's five days. You just think like, oh my gosh, <laughs> like it. At all times, you should be wrapped in latex. (laughs) like There would be nothing. (laughs) So nothing can penetrate that like barrier, right? Yeah. But it's so not true. And then I think we get into the space of a what is a normal period. And I know that's not today's conversation, but Mm -hmm. what is a normal period and what isn't a normal period so that you could go and get help so that you can know when you should see someone sooner, because then there's all this space and time that we lose thinking that what we're going through is normal when it isn't. And it's exactly like you said, because our generation, well, in my generation, I'm old, I'm 41. Um, like, we just didn't ever talk about it. And then, you know, like you said, mm-hmm. the media, too, <clears throat> when they have these stories of people who are 48 and having a baby and whatever, and it's like, wait, time out, we got to define That and I and I get the need for people to have their privacy and how they you know conceive, but I think there's also responsibility to say, hey, we don't know how this occurred, but given science physiology, this is likely what happened. Mm
1: -hmm. It may
0: or may not have been the story. Maybe this is one of those miracle things, but FYI, this is unusual. Don't expect this to happen in your life. You know what I mean? I feel like there's a responsibility to kind of to know what the normals are and, and what the likelihood of those things are. Yes. Yes. All right. So today's topic is recurrent pregnancy loss. And that kind of goes into this whole mental health thing, too, because um, pregnancy loss, no matter the term for people, I think can be very, very devastating, you know, whether it's, you know, a failure to implant or, you know, if they did not IUI or even if it's, you know, a late term, uh, pregnancy loss, I feel like a- along that spectrum, people are always going to feel really, um, I don't want to just say upset because I think that downplays the emotional kind of like experience of it. But, you know, traumatized from kind of that loss. And that's another thing I don't think we talk about. When I experienced my miscarriage Mm -hmm. in 2015, I was told these things happen. But they didn't prepare me for the emotional stuff that could come even years later. You know, it was just like, Mm -hmm. well, these things happen. Try again. And then you're like, okay, we'll try again. That was like. 2015 mm-hmm. I'm still waiting <laughs> you know yeah. so um, yeah. I think this is really important to talk about so first can we define what exactly is a recurrent pregnancy loss?
1: Yeah so um, recurrent pregnancy loss typical definition would be having two consecutive so two back-to- back, early pregnancy losses. So typically when thinking about recurrent pregnancy loss, we're thinking about first trimester um, because things that happen a little later in pregnancy, I mean, early second trimester may be included, but things that happen a little later in pregnancy tend to be something else, a different kind of entity. So recurrent pregnancy loss itself is, is two consecutive um, early pregnancy losses. And that can be what is called a chemical pregnancy, although I kind of hate that term because it's a true pregnancy. There was implantation and Mm -hmm. I feel like chemical pregnancy often will downplay um, the meaning of that Um, Mm -hmm. or whether it was 10 weeks and, you know, there was a prior heartbeat or whatever. So Mm -hmm. anything that is consecutive loss within the um, first trimester is is what is considered um, recurrent loss. And that's actually a change. I think even when I was training at that time, we thought, Three losses, Mm -hmm. um, which was always so heartbreaking to, you know, have people come in after two and say, well, you know, you can wait and and, um, have another loss, but you never want to tell someone to go have another loss before Mm -hmm. you need testing. So I'm glad of that shift. But um, yeah. Was that a recent shift? I think, you know, I don't I couldn't be able to tell you what year, but I do know, you know, when I was in residency, that's what we were still going by three, three consecutive losses. And I was in residency not, you know, five, five, six years ago. So,
0: yeah, because I'm still kind of hearing three. So that is kind of that's great Mm -hmm. that it's two, because I mean, even one sometimes feels like a lot. You know what I mean? When you've gone through it. Absolutely. So,
1: okay. And so, are there, you know, I think the reason for that is, oh, sorry. No, go ahead. Um, I think the reason for that is that, you know, when it's, when it's two in a row, you still have the most likely outcome of your next pregnancy is going to be live birth, no issues. And um, even with two, it's still more likely to be genetic issues um, than anything else. And so, um, you know, I think the feeling was, well, once it's three, then the chances go up. And, you know, it's more likely maybe something else that's going on. And so I think that's where that changed. But I think starting earlier is is something that is a bit more sensitive to um, avoiding making people go have another loss. Not that anyone ever made someone go have another loss, but getting answers sooner is always, I think, a better, better option.
0: Yeah. And as far as the data behind live births after pregnancy loss, is there... Since, you know, you kind of brought it up, is there like a sequence, like after the first one, it's X percentage birth rate, and after the second one's X percentage, like, is there like a sequential kind of thing? There
1: is, and I'd have to look up the exact numbers, but I think I have them somewhere here. Hold on. But we do know, you know, even with up to six or more miscarriages, the vast majority of people, if they continue trying or due treatment will ultimately have a successful live birth up to 80% or so.
0: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: so ultimately, we know chances still are very high of success. Um, but with each consecutive miscarriage, the chances of a loss, again, do go up um, a little bit each time.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Does does that, that
0: change with age? Like, do older people have different statistics than younger people? Or is it because the uterus doesn't really like age to some degree
1: that it doesn't necessarily matter? So it's a little bit complicated because age itself is kind of an independent risk factor for miscarriage. So we know as we get older, you know, our egg quality decreases and we have more likely to have genetic factors that can be related to loss um, just from the beginning. Um, So it gets a little bit complicated. But if you had a genetically normal embryo, then that really takes age out, as you noted, because the uterus and the body still same in the same state. Um, So those numbers would be very similar if we take that piece out of it. But if someone's getting older, they are more likely to have those losses. So it's it's kind of a more complicated issue as, as we have other things that are added in. Um, what are, are there specific
0: guidelines around recurrent pregnancy loss? So what happens if someone comes to you and has experienced two back-to-back um, pregnancy losses? What happens next?
1: So certainly want to take a really good uh, medical and personal history to see if there's anything um, that comes to mind just from, from that, because there are sometimes medical factors that can be involved or smoking for example increases risk of loss significantly and so if there's something that you know could be a major contributor we can identify that with the history and then um, kind of getting a little bit more information about the losses because when they occur and what happens with them um, does sometimes give us clues as well And then after getting a history like that, there is um, pretty good guidelines as to what testing to offer and evaluate the causes of recurrent loss. Mm -hmm.
0: Um, And what are the most common
1: conditions that cause
0: recurrent pregnancy loss?
1: So unfortunately, the most common, and this is something that is, I think, completely unacceptable in this day and age, but... More, most of the time, we don't actually get an answer as to what is causing the losses. So, that is actually the most common result of this testing. Um, and, you know, the commonly quoted amount that we don't get an answer is about 50%, but some studies quote up to even 70, to 75% of the time we don't get an answer. I think it's probably somewhere in between um, of the things that we do know can cause um, recurrent losses. Um, there's about 15 to 20% thought to be related to a specific autoimmune disorder, um, which is antiphospholipid syndrome. Um, I do think that there's probably a large immune component to that 50% that's unexplained, um, but we just don't quite have the evidence for it yet. And I know that were some other questions for later on in this conversation, so I'll, I'll hold off for that. Um About 15 to 20% related to the endocrine system, so hypothyroidism, poorly controlled diabetes, um, hyperprolactinemia, um, and then about 15% related to anatomy, so uterine anomalies like a uterine septum, or intracavitary polyps, or fibroids, or scar tissue. And then the last about 5% can be related to genetics, um, specifically something called a balanced translocation or translocation um, can be involved. And then, you know, other kinds of genetics. So again, as we get older, the genetics of the embryo, you know, tends to be more abnormal as well. So that certainly can play some role, um, especially when we are a little bit older and seeing these recurrent losses. But by and large, when we're thinking of recurrent loss as, a, as something separate than spontaneous loss, um, and that's why we want to look at these um, other things.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, and so some of these things, I mean, you know, I know that um, you kind of said some of these are immune workups and things like that, but is there like anything? Because I know um, IVF and infertility, space a large part of it we feel like there's nothing we can control and nothing we can do so is there anything we can do on our end to prevent some of these things from happening but sounds like at least from the lifestyle stuff or maybe even um you know testing ahead of time before you start treatment maybe checking a thyroid or whatever so are there things we can do ahead of time to maybe kind of spare us
1: from some of the loss of uh, pain of loss You know, it's, it's a tough one because by and large, this is no one's fault. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's not necessarily that there's anything that you could have ever done to prevent it. Now, you know, obviously looking retrospectively, you can, you can look at your lifestyle and kind of think of some things that may be impactful. So again, smoking is like the biggest no-no from any aspect of reproductive health, Mm -hmm. um, but can definitely impact things as well. Um, And I usually just recommend people kind of try to put themselves in the best health space that they can from a lifestyle standpoint. So, you know, trying to um, have an overall healthy diet with lots of fruits and veggies and antioxidants and and whole grains rather than um, processed foods. Again, getting McDonald's or having an ice cream is not going to cause a pregnancy loss, but like Mm -hmm. making sure maybe you're just trying to aim to, to improve those things in your, in your life. And I'm not someone who ever says like, totally cut something out, unless you know that that's inflammatory or problem for your system. Mm -hmm. Um, I think doing that is, is almost impossible for most people and you have to enjoy life too, going through this. So I'm not someone who says like, totally cut things out, but you know, making, making mindful choices. And by the end of the week, if you feel like, you know, you've, you've done, "Quote better than than maybe making some bad choices, but um, making you moving your body in some way, being active in some way. You don't need to run a marathon, but even just ten thousand steps is great. Mm-hmm. Um, cutting back on caffeine. You know, again, mm-hmm. we know that having a cup of coffee or tea in pregnancy, even once a day, is not an issue for mm-hmm. pregnancy. But maybe if you're a five cup a day person, kind of cut back on that." Mm-hmm. Um, So really just trying to kind of improve what you can, but realize that realistically, like, this is not your fault and nothing that you've done. Mm
0: -hmm. And then let's talk about the workup. What does the workup look like? So you talked about antiphospholipid stuff.
1: (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. yeah. um, Thyroid, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, yeah. So um, I'll kind of break it back down into those categories. So antiphospholipid syndrome, um, that is an autoimmune disease associated with blood clots. Um, Not totally clear to us what the mechanism for pregnancy loss is with that. You know, I mean, certainly kind of makes sense with implantation. There has to be blood flow, you know, developed between mom and baby, but um, we're not totally sure on it. But That would be some blood work to look at some specific antibodies, so lupus, anticoagulant, anticardiolipin, and beta-2 glycoprotein antibodies. Um, These are very different than like a thrombophilia or clotting panel, um, which is actually not recommended unless there's a personal history or family history of clotting. Um, And so that is some blood work that will be done. Um, From an endocrine standpoint, you know, again, checking your thyroid levels, checking your prolactin levels, hemoglobin A1C, which is associated with insulin resistance and diabetes. Um, A good cavity evaluation will look at the anatomy. So we can do that with a saline ultrasound or an HSG or even an office hysteroscopy um, to make sure that there are none of those anatomic factors that I talked about. And then the genetics is is done through blood tests, and so we look at actually karyotype for both um, both partners, um, because that piece is something that can come from either either the sperm or the egg, um, and that really is the the majority of the evaluation. And is there?
0: Do you just kind of do all of that all at the same time, or is there a stepwise kind of approach to
1: that? How do you go about all that testing? I typically do it all at one time, mainly because the majority of it is blood work, and we can mm-hmm. we can kind of do it all in one blood draw. I mean, it's a lot of blood to take, but, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's it's often easier. And, and then, you know, we're not prolonging the process by doing one thing at a time, unless mm-hmm. there's something that looks, like, really obvious for someone. Mm-hmm. But even still, you know, I've had people that have a septum, um, like, mm-hmm. diagnosed before they even see me, and I still do the blood work because mm-hmm. – The worst thing I can think I could do is get them pregnant again and then find out that it's something, you know, there's something else there. So to me, it's worth it to kind of do um, the entire evaluation all at once so you can see what, you know, everything that can be playing a role here so we can really make the best plan for someone.
0: And as far as the thyroid goes, is there a range that you're looking for? So if it's anywhere in the normal, are you happy? Or, cause I know some people will say, well, depending on where it is, even within the normal, I might still, you know, try depending on how many losses they've experienced or whatever. So what are your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, so we definitely want tighter control in reproductive medicine in general. So for for me and many reproductive endocrinologists, I would say our goal is 2.5, a TSH of 2.5, where the normal range goes up to, I think, four or something. Um, But in people that are trying to conceive and people with a recurrent loss, um, we definitely want a little bit tighter control. So even if it's um, 2.7, I'll start people on a low dose supplementation. And we also will look at thyroid antibodies um, in this population too. And sometimes when the thyroid, the TSH is lower than 2.5, but if they have thyroid antibodies will still start um, supplementation. So um, we we do want a little bit tighter control.
0: Okay. So even if you... Now I want to go back and look at my TSH.
1: (laughs) but um, So
0: even if it's within the normal range and it's pushing for three, four, then you'll still try and bring it back down Mm -hmm. so that it's at least for people trying to conceive. Um, Is this primarily for implantation? There's no bearing on like egg retrievals or anything like that, right?
1: doesn't typically have any issues with with egg retrieval um, or even you know egg quality likely not to cause an issue but we do know that early in pregnancy um, and related to hormones which actually during egg retrieval and stimulation your thyroid may be very out of whack we don't necessarily want to check it when you're on all of those meds but um, we know in early pregnancy that the thyroid demand goes up. And so if you're already like slightly low or at the upper limit of normal, it's it's likely to push you into abnormal. And the baby is relying on our thyroid until about the end of the first trimester, at least. So um, having that tighter control helps make sure that when you do become pregnant, you know, you're in good shape and the baby's in good shape.
0: So if you were to explore that, let's pretend, because <clears throat> um, this happens in this space and I'm sure you've heard it and I, I've seen your posts about it too. Mm-hmm. Let's say you bring this up and you don't feel like you're being heard by your doctor, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but you you know, you know, go back or maybe you've had two pregnancy losses and they're like, ah, oh, try again because they're still working off the three or whatever, right? And you look at your mm-hmm. thyroid and you you look to see it's a, a little bit out of that sweet spot that you like and you want to talk to your doctor about trying to bring that down to see if it'll help with your next pregnancy. Um, how mm-hmm. would you recommend going about like having that conversation if, if they want to say like, Hey, this may be something that I need to look at number one and number two, what time frame does it need to happen before? like before your pregnancy or transfer or whatever? Like, would you say, you know, check your blood work two weeks before and or at least have it, you know, in that range for two weeks before you transfer? Or like, what are your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah. So as far as bringing it up to your doctor, you know, my philosophy, and I know this isn't everybody's as a physician, but this is a relationship and I am always appreciative when when patients Share what they're particularly concerned about because I feel like that can help me be a better doctor for them because everybody Mm -hmm. has different things that they look at. You know, I have Mm -hmm. people who come and they want to go right to IVF and I have Mm -hmm. people that come and want to do anything but IVF and like sharing that is so important. And so I try to make everything as much of a conversation as I can. So if someone, you know, wants to try to bring that up to their doctor, you know, I... I think it's always helpful to say why, where it's coming from, Mm -hmm. Um, because, you know, there's a lot about this field and space online that is a little out there. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we want to make sure that you're getting things from kind of a reputable area. Um, and to bring it kind of as a question, like, you know, I read this about thyroid prior to pregnancy. This is what my results were. Can you explain to me, like, why this isn't a concern for me, or can you explain to me what harm it would be to try it? Um, because then, you know, it's it's less of like a you're doing this wrong, mm-hmm. and more of like a here, educate me in this moment, mm-hmm. and also you're bringing it up, like yeah. I'm concerned about that, yeah, and honestly, if you approach someone in that way and they were just kind of shut you down, it's time to find a new doctor. Yeah. But, you know, I think that's a really like easy way to do it. Like, Hey, I'm concerned about this. Do you mind just like running through why I shouldn't be or why maybe I'm right. Yeah. Um, I think is a, a good way. Yeah.
0: I, I agree. I think um, approach uh, means everything. Um, what is it? You catch more flies with honey or something. Yeah. Is that the thing? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like um so I because I know I've been on the receiving end of you know people uh, almost like it as an accusation kind of thing and that's that puts people on the defensive but I think like you said if you're like help me like I just want to understand just want to know I'm not challenging you I'm not saying that you know anything that you're doing or whatever is wrong I just want to know more I just want to understand this and I think that's The hard part about this I think it comes from A couple of different spaces I think one Mm -hmm. We just want to understand it And it just feels so Like You know Like Difficult And distant and like these like constellations of things that are happening we're like what is all of this what does it mean because it just is all the stuff that gets thrown at us right like we get Mm -hmm. like all these medications that we're injecting half of the time we have no idea what they're doing to us at at least my first cycle i had no idea but i just knew i was supposed to do them (laughs) i just knew i was supposed to inject them and what time to inject them but i had no idea what was happening and why i was doing them So I think kind of when you get through a few of these, you're like, oh, but why? But why? Can you just tell me why? I just want to understand it, you know? Mm -hmm. And I get it. These visits are so short because... You just want to try and get as many people in as you can to help as many people as you can. You can't spend like an hour and a half with people, which is one of the reasons why I'm sure you created your Instagram account and this podcast Definitely. is is that there is a space for that. But then, like you said, within that space, you want it to be a reputable space. You want it to be a space, um, you know, backed by reputable evidence to support the reasons why we're doing things. So mm-hmm. I think if you bring that type of information to your doctor and you say, hey, just help me understand, I don't understand what's going on, then I think that that's super helpful. Um, and then I guess, you know, part two of the question, and I can't remember if we actually oh. answer this, um, but <laughs> <laughs> but how long do you need to have that uh, TSH within range Before you're like, okay, we're safe to go.
1: Yeah. I mean, if it's starting still in the normal range, um, maybe just a little bit elevated over that 2.5, I, you know, I'll start people and then I recheck it after four to six weeks. But I don't necessarily um, like say, okay, you can't do treatment until, you know, two weeks after we check that. Mm If it's up higher than that, I often really do want to make sure that it's under control before we proceed. But, you know, realistically, I'm doing this testing the first time I see someone, whether they're there for infertility or recurrent loss, and so mm. we usually have that information long before they get to treatment. So, mm-hmm. um, oftentimes, it doesn't really slow people down at all. You know, I think w- as long as it's under control at the time. That ultimately you become pregnant. That I'm comfortable with that. So, mm-hmm. um, as long as it's, you know, within a couple of weeks, uh, okay. we've we've shown that it's normal. I'm happy with that.
0: And what about the prolactin levels? I don't know that I know much about that. How does that affect? Uh, how does that affect recurrent loss?
1: Yeah. So prolactin is most often thought about with um, breastfeeding and lactation. Prolactin. Um, But it comes from the same place in the brain, basically, as our gonadotropins, um, FSH and LH. And those are essential, one, for egg growth and ovulation, and also for supporting the luteal phase. And so when we think about prolactin um, impacting pregnancy, it's really more thought to be related to luteal phase dysfunction, and since that's when implantation occurs, we get concerned that maybe it's impacting something related to implantation. If there's not the right signals to have implantation kind of happen optimally, then that might be leading to loss or leading to infertility even. But um, that's where the prolactin concern comes in and with that luteal phase.
0: Okay. And what about, because I know there's a, a lot of times people do testing before transfers for progesterone levels and things like that. How often or when is that a big issue to think about when you're having recurrent losses?
1: Progesterone's a really tricky one because I think there's a lot of misinformation out there about progesterone. And I am sure anyone that's in this space is following Natalie Crawford, but she is amazing and has really, really good talks about progesterone. Like, I love Mm -hmm. the way that she presents it. But basically... So we have that luteal phase. And during the luteal phase, your corpus luteum from ovulation is making progesterone to support implantation in the early pregnancy. But during the luteal phase, the progesterone is going up and down. And you could test it two times in the same person in the same day, and it could be 3.5 and it could be 39. Um, so a lot of times when we talk about progesterone and when people come to me and say they have low progesterone, it was checked in that luteal phase or a totally wrong time in the cycle. I've had people check it in the follicular phase where progesterone should be negative. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're like, look, I was told I have low progesterone. What happens after the luteal phase, either you get your period cause your progesterone drops and you're not pregnant or, pregnancy hormone, HCG comes in and rescues that corpus luteum to continue making progesterone. And then in pregnancy, we do expect the progesterone levels to be higher. So ideally over 10, if not better, over 20. Um, and so that's kind of more where where progesterone levels are kind of more involved. And that's typically what we aim for with a, with a transfer for progesterone to be over 20, ideally. But When we're seeing low progesterones in pregnancy losses, it really is more likely to be because the pregnancy is abnormal because that HCG is not functioning to keep the corpus luteum properly making progesterone. That being said, um, with unexplained recurrent pregnancy loss, one of the options and, and an option that does increase your chances of success is doing progesterone, but it has to start in the luteal phase because it's all involved with that implantation process. So if it started a couple days after ovulation, it has been shown to benefit people who have unexplained recurrent loss. If it started once already pregnant, then it it doesn't have that same effect.
0: Okay. And then I know there are different um, methods to deliver the progesterone, right? Can you talk Mm -hmm. a little bit about the different methods? Because there's the in oil, right? Like what are all the different Mm -hmm. methods?
1: Yeah, so in general the way I like to think about it if you're supplementing progesterone, so if someone's ovulated and they're making some progesterone on their own, vaginal progesterone is the way to go because you're making a little bit of progesterone yourself, so it's it's effective enough and then you're supplementing and just doing kind of the less invasive option, the well Paginal progesterone is no, no fun either. But, um, you know, certainly I think most people are, are more comfortable with putting it in the vagina than injecting it in their butt for 10 weeks. Um, if is that the blue stuff ovulating on your own, <laughs> that is, Oh no, blue stuff is estrogen. Oh, blue stuff. is um, estrogen. Okay. Yes. <laughs> okay. Um, but I mean, it all comes out in big sticky cobs. <laughs> it's a wonderful thing that we do to everybody. Um, but if you're not ovulating on your own, so in um, completely medicated type transfer cycles where we're suppressing your ovulation, then the progesterone in oil is what is actually more successful because you need to replace progesterone. And then what becomes a little trickier is during a fresh transfer or like a stimulated transfer where you actually are ovulating and you're making progesterone.
0: Hey guys, I hope you're enjoying the episode so far. We're just going to take a quick break, so don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. I know infertility is a stressful time, and we often don't provide ourselves with enough self-care. One way to give ourselves a little more self-care is with Pranamats acupressure mats. This is what you can do. Give yourself about 20 minutes to lie down, and within those 20 minutes, this is what you're going to experience. There's going to be an increase in blood flow, a surge of endorphins, relief of muscular tension, and finally, a euphoric calm of the mind and body. So if you're due for some unwinding after a long day, go to pronomat.com and check out their different massage mat sets. Because the 40 and Infertile Podcast is a Pronomat affiliate, 40 and Infertile Podcast listeners get a special offer by using the code 40, and infertile. That's the number four, the number zero, and A-N-D, infertile, I-N-F-E-R-T-I-L-E, all one word. And now back to our episode.
1: It's still better to do that progesterone in oil because if you've used something to suppress your LH, so Cetratide, Ganaryllix, Lupron, during your stimulation, then those corpus luteum are going to function a little bit differently and you might not have that same LH support to help with the progesterone. So I use injectable for if, if you're doing it a fresh or a stimulated cycle um, or if you're completely medicated um, and replacing everything and then vaginal for everyone else that's just supplementing.
0: Mm -hmm. And then uh, let's switch gears a little bit to talk about A1C. So if your diabetes is not well controlled, are you looking for something under six or what are you, what are you looking for, for your A1C? And
1: same thing, how long? Oh, okay. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Ideally 5.7 because over 5.7, um, I think the designation is pre-diabetes at that point, but, um, you know, that's kind of my typical goal, but it's not necessarily that I start people on metformin or, or insulin at 5.7. Often at that point you can do um, lifestyle changes and interventions. Um, but we do know as the hemoglobin A1C goes up, the risks become higher of pregnancy loss and birth defects and things like that. And so at some point people do um, need to be on some kind of medication. Mm -hmm. at what point are you like it's a no-go over seven you know gets really kind of concerning from a pregnancy standpoint we really want to make sure that it's controlled after that point but Mm -hmm. you know again ideally i like it under 5.7 to like 6.5 because
0: these this a1c is checked every three months well i guess it's it's a kind of three month rolling average right so Mm -hmm. do you wait three months and then see where they are and then once they get there, then you're good to go. Like, let's say they are at 7.5 or whatever. <clears throat> mm-hmm. And let's say you do a combination of lifestyle plus medications or whatever. And then do you wait three months to recheck and then move forward after that or if they are in the sweet spot? Or do you what what do you normally do? I
1: mm-hmm. would say if it's over seven, I'm often waiting until we get it down down below before you know, doing treatment or advising pregnancy. If it's less than that, if someone's really kind of anxious to to get moving, it's always a discussion. Um, you know, I certainly don't make everyone be under 5.7 prior to pregnancy. But when we know that risk really goes up, then at that point, really, it's, it's advisable to wait.
0: Mm-hmm. And if you have and I know they're not always connected, but if you have it lower in that 5.7 sweet spot, what's the risk with gestational diabetes that may or may not come after uh, pregnancy? Is there a, a decrease in the risk for that?
1: Um, so if it's under control, there's certainly a, a decrease in the risk. Um, but if you're someone that does have higher Insulin resistance or um, altered insulin sensitivity, you are at higher risk of gestational diabetes regardless. So even if you were higher and got under control, you still may be, be at increased risk because pregnancy is a state that kind of predisposes to diabetes. You know, it's not anyone's fault in pregnancy to get gestational diabetes, it's the placenta, because it makes a hormone that makes someone <laughs> diabetic, basically. Um, it's is why we even, you know, we screen everybody. So it definitely is a little bit of a higher risk.
0: Mm-hmm. And um, so let's say you've had, you know, a, a bunch of losses, at what point are you having a conversation with your patient about gestational carriers?
1: You know, it's, that's, that's a really hard one. I think that, different people have totally different levels or not levels, but places that they're starting at for that. You know, I, I've had someone have three losses and, and say that emotionally they they just cannot handle the thought of another loss and they were ready for a gestational carrier. I've had someone who's had eight or nine losses and, and would never even think of a gestational carrier. So it's it's a very truly personal um, decision um, you know I I try to bring it in as like a potential future option like earlier rather than later you know so if someone has done IVF and we've done genetic normal embryos and we're still having losses you know I, I always say you know this is what we've done so far you know here are the things that we can change you know I don't think we're there yet but there is always the future possibility of that if that's something that you would be open to. And I'm not, you know, and I always make it like, I'm not saying you need that, but like something to think about. Cause I think the earlier you kind of introduce something like that, then when you get to the point where it's time, um, people are tend to be a little bit more open to it and, and accepting of it and and if they've been thinking about it. Um, But I really think it's, it's very individual, when people end up at that point. So I do try to let what's going on with the, with the individual kind of guide that.
0: Is there any condition, I guess, you know, aside from uterus didelphus or something like that, Mm -hmm. where, you know, there's more than one or something. Are there any uh, times where there's a condition that you're like, you know, I really think for your own benefit, a gestational carrier is better.
1: From a recurrent loss standpoint, Um, not typically, unless, you know, it's something that is also putting the mom's health at risk or, you know, the emotional and psychological burnout burden of these recurrent losses is, is impacting someone so much. But when we think about like gestational carrier really is like a, a better and safer option for someone it's often more you know those moms that would potentially have um catastrophic medical outcomes for themselves um or baby which you know certainly can help it happen with with some of the um congenital uterine, uterine um, changes or or variants um so something to definitely think about but from a recurrent loss standpoint there's not much that necessarily like would necessarily fall into kind of that category where you would say, like, my medical recommendation is, is that, you know, you, you should not be pregnant, basically.
0: Yeah. And the only reason why I ask is because in the event that, you know, maybe someone's doctor isn't really like bringing it up. And, you know, you're curious if, if that's something that um, could be helpful for you, if you're really struggling, then, you know, I just kind of wanted people to have some idea of maybe like, when would be times that maybe you could think about that. But I guess the answer to that sometimes is that maybe you just pose the question, just say, Hey, is this a space where, you know, I might benefit from using a gestational carrier, or if there's a reason why I might need one, and then, you know, you might be able to get your answer that way I think too. So um that might be another yeah, way absolutely. to kind of, yeah. Um and then I uh loved the recent I think it was a reel you did uh about um transfers and mm-hmm. um Because there was this whole thing about like, you know, do you need bed rest or do you not need bed rest after transfer? And, and, Mm -hmm. you know, does that mean that, you know, if you're if you get up and walk around and do stuff that the likelihood of your embryo sticking is going to decrease? So I love the video you did on that. Can we just do like a quick um, breakdown of what you talked about for people who are going through transfer and are worried whether or not they should be on strict bed rest or whatever? And for you guys who have not seen it, I'll put a link. Um, in the show notes to this, but there was a whole Jello thing. It was amazing. But um, could you kind of explain the the thoughts behind that and
1: kind of the data supporting it? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I think a couple of people even commented this on those posts, but when we're doing an embryo transfer, the embryo is so vastly small compared to where we're placing it. So within that endometrium, that's nice and fluffy and sticky. Um, and so it's like, dropping a tiny seed in a peanut butter sandwich is what someone said. And I really liked that. Um, But realistically, it's so small that like, there's really not anything that you can do to make that embryo move. It's, and you know, there have been a ton of studies that have looked at this and none of them showed a harm to getting right up and walking out um, and, and kind of going about your day. Um, And a couple of them did it in a really kind of interesting way. So there were a couple of studies that looked at it where, you know, we do transfers ultrasound guided. You can kind of see where those little air bubbles around the embryo land. So they had people kind of take a picture of where that was, get up, walk around for 15 minutes and come back. And the embryo was still in the same place. So I think that was really reassuring and, Um, Other studies that would compare different lengths of time of bed rest compared to getting right up or, you know, a day of bed rest or 10 minutes, you know, versus 10 minutes and none of them showed a benefit to any length of time and actually one of them showed some harm to even waiting 10 minutes afterwards and I don't know I don't, I don't necessarily think that is the case but um, we We have really good evidence that 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 embryo is not going anywhere unless there's something else that might be going on with the uterus or the fallopian tubes that could predispose it to kind of move somewhere else, like the tube, like with an ectopic pregnancy, because a lot of people had a lot of questions about that from that video. Um, But there's really nothing that you can do um, that will, will change where it lands.
0: Because I know, like, for a someone who's kind of been going through this whole infertility thing, we will like crucify ourselves for everything, you know. Like, oh, maybe it's Absolutely. because I got up and did all this thing. So, um, I just wanted to kind of have the opportunity to say, you know after a transfer, I mean, like, what if you were to go out and go for a run or something like that? Is that ill-advised or, like...
1: If it's something your body is used to, you know, I I really don't think it plays a role. You know, I, I tell people don't go start doing, like, a brand-new activity that your body doesn't really... um isn't accustomed to, but if you're a runner, it's totally safe to do that, and... You know another another I keep bringing up other creators, but um, Dr. Sasha Hockman, um, she posted videos of her like deadlifting like a ton of weights like two days after her embryo transfer, and she's now you know into her third trimester. So, you know we we know that if it's something your body's used to, you know realistically it's not going to cause any issues if you. Um, aren't someone who's super active and wants to, you know, just, I would say usually people to kind of start slow, um, or if anything feels uncomfortable, then stop. Um, so you know I think our clinic recommends pelvic rest um, after even until the ultrasound which I think is a little bit over overly cautious although you know sometimes that can make people feel more confident so absolutely if if you're not feeling like you would have a good mental space if you did something and then didn't get pregnant or had a loss don't but um, you know kind of work your way into things, do the things that your body's used to and it's it's really a sickly totally safe.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think you're often treating two things, right? The the physical thing in the body and our brains. <laughs>
1: Absolutely. And I think that's where so many restrictions after transfer come from because we know that people think about everything and like we'll say is it cuz I did this? Is it cuz I did that? You know, did I eat too much spicy food? My my palate loves spicy food. Is that a problem? You know, I, I have conversations about all sorts of things that like, to me, I'm like, Oh my goodness. Like, oh, I, I, my heart breaks that you would think that that would be related, but it's what we do. We try to explain, explain things. Um, so I think a part of our restrictions often come from like, we don't want anyone to think that they possibly could have done anything wrong. Yeah. Um, but I think we're a lot more restrictive than necessarily we have to be based on the evidence. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and I think to people get pregnant well, you know, that run marathons yes. and yes. lift weights and do all of those things. Mm-hmm. Um so, you know, we know that it's safe in pregnancy. Yeah. I
0: think kind of like you said, because we feel like we have so little control over like this whole mm-hmm. experience. We're like, what can we control? What can we fix? And then we we may sometimes and um, sometimes logically, <laughs> sometimes not always logically get fixated on things that are, you know, that may or may not be of any help. But we feel like at least we're doing something to control that space and to control yeah. the situation when we can't. So I'm, I totally get it. Um, but OK, so we had some questions. So let me uh, bring up these questions, <clears throat> if that's OK. Are you good with questions right now? Yeah. Okay. Um, all right. Question. This first question is why do PGTA
1: normal embryos fill or end in a miscarriage? So this is a tricky one and we don't always know the answer to it. Unfortunately, I feel like I'm saying over and over again today, I but know. you know, when this happens, I do think that, that by and large, most likely it's still something related to the embryo. Um, and part of my post she was talking about with the embryo transfer failures, you know, speaks to this, where there are small changes in the embryo that we can't pick up with PGTA that could be related to that, or, you know, even if you have the right number of chromosomes, it doesn't necessarily mean that the right genes are being activated at the right time for perfect implantation to occur, and so, I still think that majority of the time it can be related to the embryo because so much has to happen for it to happen optimally. So when someone doesn't have success with an embryo transfer, even if it's genetically normal, you know, the first three things I still think of are embryo. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Does the quality it, you know, matter? There's, the quality doesn't matter quite as much, you know, okay. um, if we know that it's genetically normal. I mean, a little okay. bit, you know, C-grade embryos do tend to have little bit lower success rates, um, which, you know, some clinics don't even biopsy or transfer C-grade embryos. So, you know, it all depends on what you're looking at. Um, you know, certainly we like to try to prioritize by the best looking ones first. So there may be a little bit of an impact, but, but not quite as much, I think. Um, the thought is maybe that something metabolically happened as the embryo was growing that made it look Maybe a little bit less less optimal, and maybe if that that's the case with growth, that would be the case with implantation. So maybe a little bit, but but not quite as much, I think.
0: Okay, I'm um, I'm gonna combine these two questions because they're kind of the same. Okay. Um. So one of them says uh, recurrent preg- pregnancy loss with no conception issues and chromosomally normal. What is the next step? And then the second one's implantation failure with PGT normal. What to do next? So, I mean,
1: they're very, very similar. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So the first one, recurrent loss with no conception issues and chromosomally normal, you know, I mean, really, these are the people that we really want to make sure has done that recurrent pregnancy loss evaluation, right? Like, make sure that that is all done um, and everything there is under control. Um, and then, you know, there's different, definitely, like, different proposed protocols, and this is something with, with the implying the failure, uh, the second question implying failure with a PGT, um, normal embryo. I mean, certainly with that, there's some other things we want to look for like endometriosis or, um, abnormalities with the lining, like, um, endometritis. Um, but in general, um, you know, once we've done this evaluation and we're not finding anything, then we start thinking about kind of alternative protocols, which I know some other people had asked about, there's not a lot of great evidence for them, but, you know, there's different things that, you know, in theory could be beneficial. And so sometimes we're more willing to try them than others. And I know someone had asked about a couple of them, so I don't know if I should hold off on that. But, um, you know, things like using steroids or antihistamines or blood thinners um, is something we often will change, or, you know, personally, I will change, um, for for certain people um, without again great evidence but in theory it just makes sense to me um, for some people.
0: So because you talked a little bit about endometriosis so how would endometriosis affect implantation?
1: So endometriosis is less commonly associated with recurrent loss so I just want to make sure to make that clear but with the PGTA normal embryos or just embryo um, implantation failure in general, um, endometriosis is something that's super inflammatory and we know that some of the markers that are associated with inflammation and endometriosis are found at the level of the lining of the uterus and the thought is is oh. that maybe those inflammatory markers are causing for some reason altered receptivity through progesterone. And so um, I think, you know, the main thought is that it's causing progesterone resistance. And so therefore your Mm. lining is not quite as receptive as it should be when we're doing the transfer. And that's, you know, pretty well evidenced by, you know, people, if they treat their endometriosis, either via Lupron or or surgery, it does increase their chances of having a successful transfer. Yeah. And then what
0: about, say, like a mild adenomyosis or something like that? Because I know sometimes, too, with adenomyosis, you'll treat that with Lupron. Yeah, adenomyosis very,
1: very similarly. It it would have, Mm -hmm. you know, I think expected similar um, inflammation that can cause um, that problem as well.
0: Mm -hmm. Do you like, is there if there's any adenomyosis, do you treat it or do you like wait until it's moderate at what point do you say like hey this is a real problem we should think about
1: um i don't typically treat it necessarily unless it looks um very obvious um Mm -hmm. on ultrasounds because adenomyosis is like endometriosis technically there's no diagnosis unless you do surgery and and have Mm -hmm. like pathology confirming it Um, Obviously, there's other ways to diagnose these things, it's just not 100% confirmed. So unless it's like super obvious, I don't necessarily treat it ahead of time Um, or if there's like a really high degree of suspicion. You know, certainly if someone's had a failed transfer or more than one failed transfer and I'm you know, thinking about it and looking, well, you know, the uterus does look like maybe it has some adenomyosis and at that point we would consider treating it. Um, But not necessarily right from the beginning.
0: Okay. Um, and then this is uh, related to age. Um, how do you improve egg quality
1: and create embryos at 47? This is really, really hard because at 47, very, very few of the eggs are genetically normal. Um, and so regardless of what kind of interventions we do from an overall egg quality standpoint, from a genetic egg quality standpoint, there's there's just nothing we can do to reverse the genetics. And, you know, it's hard to find that genetically normal egg. You know, over 45, pretty much less than 5% of our eggs are genetically normal. And, and then as we get older, the numbers go down too. So it's like a double hit because... Okay, five percent of our eggs are normal, but if we can get a hundred eggs, fine, we'll we'll still get an embryo. But if we're only getting one egg, then we don't have that. So unfortunately, at that age, it's it's really really hard um, to get pregnant with your own egg. Um, and you know, oftentimes, or pretty much, well evidenced that IVF doesn't really improve chances because if we're not getting more than more than one egg, you know, why go into the body and and do surgery and put you at all of these risks. When if you ovulate one egg on your own, you have that same chance, um, Mm -hmm. one egg or one egg, depending on how we get it. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, there's certainly, again, those lifestyle things that we talked about, there are some supplements that may, you know, improve overall health as well as egg quality, but really at that age, the majority of the issue is genetic. And so there's really not much we can do to or nothing really that we can do to change that. Mm -hmm.
0: Okay. Um, Let's see blood flow issue to the uterus a friend brought up uh, that after uh, brought this up to me after my uh, eight week week eight miscarriage.
1: This is super rare, um, you know, and not necessarily something that's been proven to cause losses. Um, You know, again, we have kind of good evidence for the genetics and then pretty good evidence for for these other causes of recurrent loss. You know, blood flow issues is certainly something that is one of those things that in my mind, you know, certainly could play a role theoretically. And so for some people, we'll use aspirin and lovinox and and that'll do the trick for them. But for most people, I would, would not say that blood flow issues are what's causing these losses. I think
0: another thing to bring up too, because when I go to my acupuncturist, they talk a lot about blood flow to the uterus. Mm-hmm. And I think um, it's important to kind of differentiate maybe the thought behind that. I think, because when I go to the acupuncturist, they say, oh, we're going to do these acupoints to increase blood flow to the uterus. Mm-hmm. And I think from the, so that's like the Eastern medicine philosophy. And I think Western medicine philosophy, when you're looking at blood flow, you're looking at like something you can see coursing through the blood vessels, um, as opposed to increasing um, the amount of um, like normal blood flow that would go there to kind of help um, with pregnancy. So I think there's two different philosophies of thinking and how blood flow can help with pregnancy. Um, And so I I, I think that's important to kind of bring up, too. Um, So there are... Two questions that are kind of related, so I'll kind of lump these together as well. Um, Thoughts on seeing a reproductive immunologist when all tests come back normal and opinions on reproductive immunology treatments for recurrent pregnancy loss, low-vinox, prednisone, antihistamine.
1: Yeah. So um, I think if someone feels like mentally they will benefit from that, um, I think it's worthwhile to at least get an opinion. Um, I, right now, we do not have great evidence for much of the immune treatments that are available. As I said at the beginning, I do very much believe that a large part of unexplained recurrent pregnancy loss probably is related to the immune system because it just makes sense. But every, you know, most studies that look at different immune tests or different immune treatments at this point don't really show a benefit for live birth. Um, Mm -hmm. And I know you'll hear stories all over the place about like, oh, well, I had my NK cells tested and then they did this treatment and now I have a baby. Mm -hmm. And I don't ever want to downplay someone that went through that and found success. But right now, I just don't think that we have much great evidence. Now, There's totally a benefit sometimes to empiric treatment. Like we don't know what Mm -hmm. we're treating, but we're going to do it Mm -hmm. by this because the theory is there and it makes Mm -hmm. sense. So the antihistamine Mm -hmm. protocol, that is something that I will use for people with recurrent loss. That is not evidence. It has not been studied um, Mm -hmm. for recurrent loss or pregnancy in general but we know that histamine is very important in implantation. We know that people can have aberrant histamine systems and I've Mm -hmm. seen great success with it. Do I know totally why it works? No, I don't. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's also a very low level intervention with low risk and potential harm. And so Mm -hmm. with this potential benefit, it's worth it now. Yeah. There are other things that may be very costly or expensive or mm-hmm. invasive that people propose as options. Um, in that situation maybe not a good empiric option because it's it is causing harm, whether financial mm-hmm. or you know, potential to to your body yeah. and health. Um yeah. I I fully expect to be putting my foot in my mouth 30 years from now, because I'm <laughs> sure we are going to have so much more evidence, which I love. You know, mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. am excited for that. And I'm so ready to have more information because 50% mm-hmm. plus is totally unacceptable, like I said. Yeah. But right now, you know, much of that evidence just isn't there. But I support mm-hmm. my patients that want to get that evaluation and even do those treatments. Mm-hmm. And I work with people that are working alongside of a reproductive immunologist all the time. Mm -hmm.
0: Mm -hmm. And I mean, for me, for someone who is older and who knows genetically and physiologically, I'm running out of time for my own genetics. You know, I have looked into this and I'm like, yeah, I'll try it. Because for me, it's my last ditch effort before I move to donor. And for me, it's worth it to explore. Like I've done ovarian PRP, I would consider uterine PRP. Like, Mm -hmm. I'm like, yeah, let's do it. (laughs) Like, I'm open (laughs) to it. it. If anything, it gives you like anecdotal data for, you know, your own practice at Mm -hmm. some point in time. It's not, you know, randomized controlled or, you know, in this like, you know, perfect little vacuum Mm -hmm. um, of a research study. But for, for me, I can see why people would go there because, you know, like I said before, before I move on to donor before I give up on my own genetics like I'm the, I like want to try everything possible before I say Absolutely. you know what I really tried and there's nothing left I can't do anything else and then for me that's like a closure thing you know mm-hmm. to say okay I really did so I, I can understand people yeah and there's benefit to that yeah I, I get that too I really do yeah um okay uh, another question um still worth investigating when you're 40 or over um she was told her recurrent miscarriages are due to her
1: age i do i do think it's still worth investigating it's the same as what i said before like sure we have a a higher level of suspicion than it might be your genetics but what if it's not especially Mm -hmm. in someone that doesn't have other children or hasn't really tried until they're you know older yeah um I I think it's worth it to do the testing, because again, if I find something else that I can help with, I want to know. Mm-hmm. And these tests typically are not, I mean, first of all, many of them are done in, in fertility testing anyways. Mm-hmm. Um, so we do get a lot of information from that, but they're not like invasive or har- harmful tests. Mm-hmm. So to me, it's worth doing it all. Mm-hmm. I mean, I totally agree. Not that my opinion matters, but <laughs> like <laughs> totally, totally matters but like i you, you know you have to be the one that's benefiting from it i also don't want to say let's go do all of this and have someone think that i'm wasting their time or just right. trying to take money which i don't get money from doing it but yeah. um you know i i just think that again like what if it's not that
0: yeah well i mean i think one thing and you know i'm one isolated story right but like you know, I kind of had this suspicion that I had endometriosis and, mm-hmm. you know, at 41, like I, throughout my whole life, there had kind of been little hints here and there, but because I spent most of my life mm-hmm. on birth control, like I would never really know it because, you know, all of it was being masked, which happens, which is whatever you know it happens when you're on birth control and um so when i was coming off you know i noticed i'm like oh my periods are kind of heavy oh they're kind of uncomfortable but not to the point i you know never stayed home from work or anything like that Mm -hmm. still went to work and then i think during this whole infertility process i started to really think about like because also i have adenomyosis and i'm you know Mm -hmm. they're friends and so i'm like well I wonder. And then finally, after a hysteroscopy uh, didn't go as planned, they're like, you know, I really do think you have endometriosis. And at 41, you know, yeah. did a laparoscopy and, you know, stage four endometriosis. And I'm like, oh, so I like only because of what happened to me. I'm like, yes, it does matter even after 40, <laughs> because, Absolutely. you know, it might, yeah, it might be that now I could do another retrieval and maybe my eggs might be a little bit better or maybe might have another chance because I, I think I read some of the data around, you know, after you have your excision, that first period of time after your excision, your your fertility does improve some, mm-hmm. uh, obviously changes mm-hmm. with age as well. But I'm like, oh my gosh, that wasn't, that's it's still an opportunity. However small it is, it's still a chance that I have. And I'm like, oh my gosh. So like I'm totally, it's probably because I'm biased because I'm 40. <laughs> like yes still (laughs) still keep fighting (laughs) i Um, I agree yeah Um, okay last question is a premature uh preterm premature rupture of membranes um in first pregnancy um and they don't know what caused it can a cerclage uh, which is like a stitch in the cervix correct um Mm -hmm.
1: help in a second pregnancy so I I don't think I'm the right one to answer this you know typically P prom is kind of a different process than recurrent pregnancy loss which is beneficial for you to know you know definitely don't need a recurrent loss workup for that um, but it's hard for me to recall back to my OB OB generalist or OB MFM um, days you know what the treatment is for that mm-hmm. um, and it may have changed in the time mm-hmm. that I've that I've practiced obstetrics so I don't know that I'm the best person to answer that um, unfortunately but wouldn't be thought to be related to a recurrent loss um, process. Could they like ask his to, to see an
0: MFM and discuss it is that something that they could do? They probably should they
1: absolutely should yeah okay um, and I think any general OBGYN would would likely recommend, you know, this happened in your prior pregnancy. And we're going to get you checked out by MFM, either pre-pregnancy or in early pregnancy to see what we can do differently.
0: OK. Yeah. So maybe for that person, they can um, ask their GYN for a referral to an MFM uh, and then kind of discuss this for future pregnancies or something. So you did know the answer to definitely. This. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, so how do people connect with you? How do they uh, schedule an appointment with you? Um, do you see people out of state? I don't even, I don't think we mentioned what state you were in. <laughs>
1: so, I- um, Yeah, so I'm in Massachusetts and I'm looking for my card for the number to get to me and this is someone else's card. So <laughs> um, I'm in Massachusetts. I do mainly telemedicine for consults. So I have had people come from out of state. You know, it's just, whether or not you would ultimately end up wanting to do treatment mm-hmm. in Massachusetts, because mm-hmm. that's ultimately what I would do. Um and my office number is 617-449-9750. I'm at C C R M in Boston. Mm-hmm. Um I also am pretty active on Instagram um and TikTok um and trying to figure out if I need to branch out into other spaces, but um, I do weekly Q and A's on Instagram. I post pretty actively on both platforms. So you can also reach out to me there, although I'm pretty bad about answering direct messages. So if you're looking for treatment, certainly call that office number, um, or look me up online and you can find me. And, um, you know, I, I don't have a, have a super long wait for, for appointments. So I'd be happy to see anyone.
0: Yeah, well, thank you so much for taking the time to uh, be with me today and talk about this really, really difficult topic that I think can be triggering for a lot of people. And I know it's not easy to answer these questions. And especially when we ask you these hard questions, because we're like, help us fix it. We just want to fix it. Just tell us what to fix. And I know there's not always an answer, which is like the worst part of all of this. Mm -hmm. Um, So
1: thank you for taking the time to really break it down and explain it to us absolutely and just so you know we are feeling the same way from our end like we just want to fix it we want to help them fix it and hopefully have a good outcome and most most people do and that is something to like definitely take to heart because it is so hard to see any kind of good or positivity when you're going through it any kind of infertility or recurrent loss but most people do have success ultimately or you know, peace, at least um, with their process. And so something totally to keep keep in mind. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, I hope that um, you'll come back and talk about more topics with us because there's so much to kind of dig into in the infertility space. And mm-hmm. I love all the stuff you present on your um, online space. So um, hopefully I'll, I'll put another request out. We'll, we'll discuss another topic yeah. if you're open to it
1: yeah absolutely and hopefully it won't take three months next time because i was (laughs) crazy busy this summer
0: no 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 are you kidding me i'm grateful for any time i can get like (laughs) are you like if it's four months from now whatever it's fine we'll put it on the calendar but i'm grateful for any amount of time that uh you can spend with us just educating us because like i said A lot of us feel like we just want more information and it's like, where do we go? How do we get it? And there's like so much crazy stuff out there and there's like good stuff too, but trying to weed through some of the crazy stuff to get to the good stuff can be hard. So when you have an actual, you know, practicing REI to kind of talk to us about this stuff and kind of bring in some of the data to support it, then it it is really, really helpful for us to kind of digest and at least If we can't have this conversation with our own doctors, then we can hear it. And then maybe we can bring this to our doctors from a more educated um, standpoint, which may or may not help us be heard a little bit better. So, I mean, you're helping people everywhere um, try and get care. So thank you so much. And um, hopefully, uh, you know, maybe within what are we in? So maybe by the end of the year, (laughs) we'll do another one. (laughs) Sometime. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for being here today. And we will connect soon. I want to thank you for tuning in today. I hope you found today's episode helpful. If you want a question or topic covered in future episodes, please feel free to reach out to me on Instagram at 40 and infertile. Make sure you hit the subscribe button for alerts and new episodes. And I hope to see you back again soon.